Well, as Nathan just prayed, we come to the preaching of God's word. Join me in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, which is one of, if not the most comforting chapters that we read in all of the Bible. John chapter 14 being a chapter of hope. The hope that every believer can have in the midst of heartache. It's a chapter of calmness. The calmness every child of God can maintain in the midst of great chaos. It's a chapter about strength. The strength that we have if we are united to Christ. Strength in the midst of sorrows that often mount against us. In your bulletin, you can see we've entitled this chapter, we've entitled this sermon series, Tranquil Hearts in Troubled Times. Tranquil Hearts in Troubled Times. Because of how the chapter begins, look at verse 1. It begins with a command from Jesus to his apostles, do not let your heart be troubled, stirred, agitated. Do not let your heart be shattered with fear or overcome by sorrow. And it's in the plural. Let no one's heart, let no one's heart be shaken. No one in God's family is left out of this command. There are no circumstances, no circumstances that can overtake us as God's children for which God has no answer. And no comforts and no peace. It's also a command in the present tense, which means that Jesus' apostles were currently in a state of trouble. They were fearful, fearful that their master was leaving them. They were shocked that he was going to die. They were horrified that one of their own was going to betray him. So Jesus' words here are a call for them to take action. Do not stay troubled. In fact, translate the command, stop letting your hearts be overcome with turmoil. Stop that. Take action. It's the action of faith. Faith in the promises that we will see in a little bit. And notice this command that Jesus gives in verse 1 is repeated in verse 27. Do not let your heart be troubled, to which Jesus then adds, nor let it be fearful. These are now bookends to this chapter. Everything we read in chapter 14 has to do with how believers can guard themselves against a troubled, anxious, fearful, bewildered, sorrowful, depressed heart. This is a needed message for every Christian for one reason, because throughout this final farewell to Jesus' apostles, Jesus paints no rosy-hued picture of life in this world. Look at chapter 15, verse 19. Notice the promise. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. If you were not called out of this world from sin into righteousness, if you were not called out of uh, the family of Satan into the family of God, the world would love you. But Christ says, I chose you out of the world. And because of that, the world hates you. 
we will have trouble in this world. It's God's people. Look at chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus makes no promise of comfort and ease for his followers. In the world, you have tribulation. That is a settled fact. There's no prediction of a painless, sorrowless life for God's family. J.C. Riles wrote this, even the best of Christians have many bitter cups to drink between grace and glory. Even the holiest saints find the world a veil of tears. This has been our world ever since the fall of man. We see this veil of tears, this pain on the personal level, even on the international level. And yet Jesus' promise in this chapter is that the world's veil of tears need not close upon our hearts. This is one of the great hopes of Christ's gospel, that we as God's children can cast our burdens upon him. And the promise is he will sustain us. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, we need not ever be worried about our life. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, no scenario. The peace of God will guard our hearts. 1 Peter 5, we can cast all our anxieties, all our worries and troubles on him. Why? He cares for us. We have a caring God. We have promise after promise that even though life will be filled with trouble, our heart need not be shaken. So we find in chapter 14, our 12 promises from Christ throughout this chapter, 12 promises that he calls every believer to cling to in faith. This is how verse one ends When Jesus says, believe in me, believe everything I'm about to tell you in the next 30 verses. Rest in these promises. Hold on to them. Cling to them. Find your security in them now. In fact, notice Jesus puts these promises on par with the Old Testament in verse 1 again. He says, believe in God, referring to the Old Testament promises of trusting in Yahweh, finding comfort in the sovereign Lord. Believe in God, to which Jesus adds, believe also in me. Just like you believe the promises in the Old Testament from God, words from God, believe my promises of comfort as well. It's a claim to deity at this point. Everything that follows now are divine promises of peace for every believer. This is counsel from Christ for how we can maintain tranquil hearts when living in troubled times. We're going to focus on the first divine promise this morning here. Christ gives it to his apostles. We can draw application for us as well. Here's promise number one, divine promise number one, be hopeful In the midst of troubled times, in the midst of a chaotic world, be hopeful. Why? Because the Father's house is our future home. 
The Father's house is our future home. Start in verse 1. Let's read through verse 7. Do not let your heart be troubled because in my Father's house, this is a reference to the present heaven. This is not a reference to the new heavens, the new earth that's coming. This is the present heaven right now where believers go. The moment they pass from this world in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, enters the Father's house, but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Be hopeful, Jesus says, through sorrow, through pain, through chaos. Be hopeful because the Father's house is our future home. Now remember, the distress that the apostles are experiencing is because they are losing their spiritual father, their mentor. Not only has Jesus told them he must leave, and we've seen this now since chapter 8, even before. But chapter 8, Jesus says, I go away. Chapter 12, you do not always have me. For a little while longer, the light is among you. It's only a little while longer, though. John 13, little children, I am with you a little while longer. They know he must leave. They're losing him. But even more than that, they're losing him in the worst possible way. They're losing him to death, to the cross. Back in chapter 3, and Jesus made this clear, John chapter 3, he says the Son of Man must be lifted up, must be lifted up above this earth. This is the cross. John 12, I will be lifted from the earth. John adds, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he must die. This is the cross coming. They know what's in store. He's predicted it. So this is why Peter says, back in verse 37 of chapter 13, it's why Peter says to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. I don't want to lose you. I would rather lose my life. So they know that Jesus' death, horrific death, is imminent. So you can understand why they're troubled in heart. Every hope they have put in Christ seems to be futile at this moment. The decision to leave everything for Jesus seems to have been a waste. They're fearful because the one they love is leaving them. They're devastated because the one they confess to be God incarnate is about to be executed and he's letting it happen. The apostles are shattered by the thought of losing Jesus and all the hopes they placed in him. 
And so Jesus now begins to calm their hearts, to put to rest their temporal fears by giving them an eternal perspective. For three years, Jesus has told his apostles that he had been sent from heaven by the Father. But now he adds something. He makes clear heaven is not just where the Father dwells, and it is not just where he came from. Now he adds this. Heaven is also the future home of all who have come to Christ in saving faith. That same glorious heaven, that same heaven of joy is our home, our destiny. Let's draw out the application here. Whatever this world might take from us, in the case of the apostles, the world was taking Christ. He'd be bound by Roman guards. He'd hang for hours on the cross. They would lose Jesus. In our case, it's something else. But Jesus' promise remains the same. Whatever this world might take from us, whatever loss we might experience in this life, it can never take away our heavenly home, ever. Whatever loss we might experience, we will never lose our future glory in heaven. So Jesus gives five descriptions then of this untouchable heavenly home that we have, that we can look forward to, look forward to even in the most heart-wrenching, chaotic of times. This is our future. This is our destiny if we have come to Christ in saving faith. There's five descriptions. We're going to focus in on the first four descriptions of our heavenly home here. We'll look at the fifth next week, but we'll draw out application as we go. Start in description number one. Description number one. Our heavenly home is filled with fatherly love and care. Our heavenly home is filled with fatherly love and care. That's what's wrapped up in the image in verse two here. My father's house are many dwelling places. It's an earthly picture of a heavenly destination. When the apostles would have heard this, they would have had in mind the lavish Greco-Roman villas in the area. These would be homes, call them estates, with porches and walkways. Some of them would even have streams and gardens and shade and trees. It's a picture of beauty, a picture of peace. But this is more than that. The description, my father's house, is a description of intimacy, of love and care. This is the love that the perfect divine father will bestow upon all who live in his residence. Christ's father will be our father. This is the never-ending care he will show his children. And that phrase, there are many dwelling places. If you have a King James, this is translated as mansions. It's better as rooms or residences. Because it's a further picture of intimacy. In fact, the same word, dwelling places, is used in verse 23. Notice, 
not speaking of heaven, but will take place now. Notice we, Jesus says, we, the Father and the Son, will come to him and make our abode, our dwelling place. We will make our home with the believer. We'll look at that later on. But it's intimacy. It's this dwelling place where the Father is, where we will be. Again, in the apostle's mind, this is what an earthly father would do. An earthly father, when his son would return home with a wife, with a child, children, family, the father would not only welcome them into the family, but he would extend his estate. He would build on so that they could be one family together, loving and caring. So all of that is metaphorical language. Again, intimacy, love, and care that fills this heavenly home. Now, Jesus could have used any image to describe heaven at this point, any image. In Hebrews 11, heaven is described as a country. Hebrews 12, heaven is described as a city. Second Timothy, heaven is described as a kingdom. Luke 23, heaven is described as a paradise or a garden. But at this point, Jesus chooses the more personal image of a home, a house. Why? Again, to quote Ryle, this is a sweet and touching expression. Home, as we all know, is the place where we are generally loved for our own sakes and not for our gifts or possessions. The place where we are loved to the end, never forgotten and always welcome. There will be room for all believers and room for all sorts, for little saints as well as great ones, for the weakest believer as well as the strongest feeblest child of God need not fear there will be no place for him none of God's children will be shut out again the place where we are loved to the end our father's home the apostles think they are losing Jesus on this night but Jesus assures them that through his departure they are gaining a heavenly paradise they're gaining a fatherly home. Let's bring some application to us then. In times of sorrow, in times of pain, in times of chaos, we must keep in mind that this world is not our home. This world is not our home. That's our temptation, isn't it? To tie our joys here and now this world is not our home. We are wanderers. We are pilgrims. We are aliens in a foreign land. Philippians chapter 3, our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. Hebrews 11, we have a better country that awaits us. It's a heavenly one. Hebrews 13, we do not have a lasting city here now. That's important to keep in mind, isn't it? We do not have a lasting city here. No, we are seeking the city which is to come. That's our mindset, that's our view, that's our hope. The darkness of sorrow will not lift. We can rest assured full comfort is coming. 
and the pain of loss is heavy, we can remember that there's a permanence of heaven that awaits us. When sin ravishes our life here, we can look forward to a dwelling place where there is no sin. And we can connect this promise to what we read back in John chapter 1. I think there's a connection. John chapter 1, we are called children of God. We've been given the right to be called children of God. Well, with that right comes a father's home for us. To which Jesus then adds, look at verse 2. If it were not so, I would have told you, you can trust me. Do not let the sorrows of this world steal our hope. This is true. This is real. Notice the I there. I would have told you. If there's anyone who can guarantee the existence of a glorious and joyous and perfect heavenly home, it's Christ. Because that's where he's come from. The Father has sent him. He's lived there before and he promises that we will be there with him in the future. This is Christ's promise for all of his people. Be hopeful. The Father's house is our heavenly home and it will be filled with a fatherly love and care. We will be welcomed there. Leads into a second description. Our heavenly home is a gift of sacrificial love. It's a house of care. It's a house of love. This is a gift of sacrificial love. When sorrow fills our hearts, when chaos tempts us to wonder, does our God love us? Or maybe this, has he withdrawn his love from us? We must remember the extent of our Savior's love that he has for his people. Notice the end of verse 2. For... Here's the reason why Christ's Father's house is our future home. It is because Jesus says, very personal now, very personal. I go to prepare. I go to make ready. I go to put in order a place for you. It's repeated for emphasis in verse 3. I go to prepare a place for you. This is my doing. This is my choice. Now connect this promise, I go to prepare a place. Connect this with what Jesus has said before. Look at verse 33, 1333. He says, where I am going, referring to the cross, where I am going, you cannot come. Look at verse 36. Where I go, you cannot follow me. Again, referring to his cross. Jesus' words, I go to prepare a place for you, are not words for his ascension. These are words for his death, his cross. This is not a reference that he's going to heaven to make heaven ready for his people. As if heaven needs to be built for our arrival. Or heaven needs to be cleaned up before we get there. We, we all know, right, that final five-minute mad dash before guests get there. Right, we make sure everything's in order 
You, you talk to your 18-year-old daughter, the, the one who just turned 18, and, and you say you need to pick up your socks that are all over the house. That could just be me. I don't know. It's that final five-minute dash, right? We need to get things in order. Company's coming. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not talking about going to heaven to get it ready. He's talking about, I'm going to prepare a place. I'm going to the cross. That's how I'm going to prepare heaven. In fact, you can think of it this way. Jesus must prepare them for heaven. He doesn't have to prepare heaven for them. I'm going to remove every obstacle that would lock you out of the Father's home. I'm going to die for you. That's the promise. I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going to die for you. Why? So that you can walk through that front door. I'm going to bear my Father's wrath for you. That's how I'm going to prepare heaven for you. So that you can enjoy the Father's love. I will pay the wages of your sin so that you can experience the bounty of blessing. He's talking about the cross. One commentator wrote, the preparation of the place is not with hammer and nails. The instruments are a cross and a grave. That's how he prepares heaven for us, us for heaven. And notice how personal, how personal Jesus is in this preparation promise. Verse two, I go. This is my choice. I go through betrayal. I go through abandonment. I go through trial and crucifixion and burial and resurrection and exaltation. I go for you. I'm choosing to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I will prepare you. And why does Jesus make this promise? What's driving him at this point? Why will he purchase our future home through his painful death? Why does he do this? Why does he do for us what we can never do for ourselves? Why? He's told us. Look back at chapter 13, verse 1. We've been told it is because of his love. His love for us. Chapter 13, verse 1. He loved us to the end, to perfection, to the cross. Verse 34, John 13, 34. I have loved you. He'll repeat himself in chapter 15, verse 9. I have loved you. John 15, 12. I have loved you. 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to what prepare heaven for you to lay down my life for my friends. The present heaven is a gift of Christ's perfect love for us. So how do we guard ourselves? How do we guard a troubled heart in trying times? We remind ourselves of Christ's perfect and personal and sacrificing and heaven-purchasing love he had for us when he went to the cross. We remind ourselves of that love. 
And then we remember it is that love that he has right now for us as he intercedes for us. It's not a different love. It's the same love. He had it when he was dying for us. He has it now that he's resurrected. So in times of sorrow, our Savior has not stopped loving us. He can't. Times of fear, he has not withdrawn his care from us. Times of heartache, he has not removed any of his compassion. How could he? How could he do that? He loved us through his father's wrath. He loved us so that we could live. He loved us when we were his enemies. But now we're in the family. So it's unthinkable that Christ would ever withdraw his love from us now. That makes no sense. We're his. He's interceding, praying for us. This is the argument Paul makes in Romans 8. Paul writes, he who did not spare his own son, the love the father had for us when he gave his son to death. That love, that giving love, sending love, when he delivered him over for us all, that love he had for us in the past, that same love has application for us in the present. The argument is, if the father gave us the greatest gift of love, the saving death of his son, here's the question, how will he not also with him freely give us what? All things. He's given us the son of his love. He will give us everything else. He will give us his compassion. He will give us his peace, his strength. He will never withdraw his love from us now. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit will never stop loving us now that heaven is our home. So when sorrow fills our heart, and it will, we must remember Christ sacrificing and heaven purchasing love for us. It's the greatest gift of love. The third description here. Third description meant to calm the apostles and our troubled hearts. Description number three. Our heavenly home will be a glorious reunion with Christ. Our heavenly home will be a glorious reunion with Christ. Look at the promise in verse three. If I go to prepare a place for you, if I fulfill the messianic promises of offering myself through death in the place of sinners, if I do that, which he will, if I exhaust God's wrath against all who will come to my Father in saving faith through Christ, if I will be forsaken by the Father so that you will never be forsaken, if I go to prepare that place, if I go to the cross, then rest assured, I will come again. Death will not hold me, Jesus says. I will come again. The punishing hand of my father will lift. 
The grave will be emptied. And one day, again, this is personal, one day I will receive you to myself. Just as personal as Jesus' death was for us, I go to prepare a place for you, so too his return is for us. It is personal. I, Jesus says, I personally will come again and receive you to myself. This is the care he has for us. None are forgotten. Now remember, the greatest fear for these apostles was that Jesus was leaving them. It's the greatest loss imaginable. And so what you find Jesus doing over and over again in chapter 14, he constantly reminds his apostles that once he leaves them in order to fulfill his redemptive work, Once that happens, once that's accomplished and completed, he will never leave them again. He must leave them to save them, but once that happens, he will never leave them again. He must leave them now, but it's only for a time. It's for a purpose to prepare heaven for them. But again, once that work is done, he will never leave them ever but this will show itself in a variety of ways. So look at verse 19. Jesus says, I'm going to leave you through death, but I'm going to come back to you in resurrection. In resurrection, verse 19. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. I'm going to die. The last view the world will have of me is hanging on the cross. But you, contrast, But you, my apostles, you will see me. Why? Because I live. I will resurrect from the dead. And I will appear to you. I'm leaving you now to go to the cross, but rest assured, I will appear to you later. That's what he does Sunday morning. He appears to them. But Jesus also knows that once he resurrects, he also must ascend. So in a way, he needs to leave his apostles again. He must ascend to the Father for a variety of reasons. One, so that he can send his spirit to them. So notice the promise in verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you, keyword, another, another of the same kind, another helper. He's going to give you a helper just like me. Who is this helper? Verse 17, that is the spirit of truth. And now watch what he says in verse 18. When the Spirit comes, notice, I will not leave you as orphans. Though I'm ascending to heaven, I'm not leaving you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How does Christ come to his apostles? He comes to them through the Holy Spirit. That's how united the Spirit and Christ are. Spirit is Christ's Spirit. So Christ must ascend to the Father, but he's not going to leave them. He's going to give them his Holy Spirit who will mediate his presence. In fact, look at verse 23 again. This is staggering. I'm still trying to figure out how to explain this later when we finally get there. Verse 23, we read, For those who love Christ, who keep his word, watch, my Father will love him and we. 
the Father and the Son will come to him and make our abode with him. It's a Trinitarian promise. We will be the dwelling place of the Trinity. So Christ promises to come to them in resurrection, but now he promises to come to them in the Spirit, through the Spirit, who will indwell every believer. He will never leave them. But let's go back to verse 3. Because there's another promise Jesus makes about coming to his people, never leaving them. This is a time, he predicts, when he will receive us, when he will gather us to himself. This is a personal return of Christ to earth. This is the blessed hope that we look forward to right now. Jesus is not referring to his final return at the end of the age, at the end of the tribulation. That's not the reference here. That return will be different. In that return, he will send his angels to gather his people. It's Matthew 24. But here, what is the promise? It's personal. I will receive you to myself. I will gather you. When Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, he will usher the people, his people, into his kingdom. But here the promise is not to be ushered into the kingdom, but ushered into where? The Father's house, the Father's home. When Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, Jesus will pour out wrath upon his enemies. Here, he pours out blessing upon his people. So the promise here in verse 3, this is known as the snatching away, the rapture of the church. It can happen at any moment, any moment. This is the next event on God's prophetic timetable. Yes, Jesus is with us right now because his spirit indwells us and seals us. But one day, he will return and call his people to himself. I think this is the passage, John 14, 3. I think this is the promise. I will receive you to myself. I think this is what Paul has in mind when he writes that great comforting passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. You can hear the similarities. Paul says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, most likely referring to this word of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord that he's referring to. When the Lord himself will descend from heaven and he will come with a shout. This is the personal return of Jesus for his own. And the dead in Christ, those who are in the heavenly home now without their glorified bodies, the promise is the dead in Christ will rise first. They will resurrect from the dead. They will receive their glorified bodies, that promise. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet who? To meet the Lord in the air. That's the personal return, the personal calling to himself. And then Paul adds this, so key. And so we shall always be with the Lord. It's very similar to what Jesus says, that where I am, there you may be also forever. We will always be with him. 
The promise is this, no matter whether we are dead when Christ returns to fulfill John 14, or we are alive when he fulfills this, when Christ returns, our guaranteed future is with him. We will always be with him. We will either have his spirit in us, or we will be with him in his father's home. To which Paul then adds this, same application. Christ's application of this future return was what? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Have this eternal mindset, have this calming upon you, to which Paul then adds in his passage, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Same idea, do not let your hearts be troubled. Find comfort in this now. Again, the application. Whenever there is trouble within the heart, whenever we see the chaos in this world, you need to remember that at no point in the Christian life are we without Christ. At no point. Again, right now, Christ is with us through his spirit, but there is a coming day when he will receive us to himself in the sky. And he will personally usher us into glory where we will be reunited with our Savior. So that, verse three, where Christ is, wherever he is, for how long he will be there, where Christ is, there we may be also. That's our future, guaranteed. Which leads directly into a fourth description here and we'll finish up. Description number four, our heavenly home is a place of perfect pleasure. Our heavenly home is a place of perfect pleasure. What makes heaven heaven, what makes this promise of hope hopeful is not the streets of gold. It's not the unending life It's not even being freed from sin. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus' promise, where I am, there you may be also. That's what makes heaven heaven. It's that Christ is there. All his fullness. That phrase, where I am, there you may be also, it's probably the most comforting description of heaven there is. Quote John Piper, he says, the essence of heaven is the immediate presence of Jesus. That's what makes heaven heaven. It means that Christ's desire for his people is to experience his joy. That's his desire. His desire is that we would be completely satisfied in him forever, in your presence is fullness of joy. John 17, notice the prayer that Jesus offers. John 17, 24, he says this, Father, I desire, here's my desire, that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Why? So that they may see my glory. That's my desire. Be filled with my joy. Experience my glory. Find pleasure in my person. Be satisfied. 
all because of Jesus' promise, where I am, there you may also be. This is why Paul preferred to be absent from the body and to be at where? At home with the Lord. That's why Paul says that being with Christ in glory was very much better. Very much better. Doesn't compare. Heavenly home is where our greatest joy will be found. The words of one commentator, think of every word that describes what is good. Think of every word. Beautiful, peaceful, joyous, wonderful, great, amazing, happy, spectacular. Heaven will be all of these things, but only because Jesus is there. So the apostles could find comfort even though they were losing Jesus. And we too can find peace when we experience great loss in this world because no matter the hurt and no matter the heartache and no matter the chaos, our future with Christ is secured. The darkness of our pain will one day break. The fog of sorrow will one day lift. And we will be one day with our Savior. Every ache will be turned to joy. Every pain will be turned to pleasure. Why? Because we will be with our Savior finally. We will be satisfied forever in his presence. Back to those opening verses of chapter 14. Be hopeful, Jesus says. Be hopeful because my Father's house is your future home. Alcorn writes this, anticipating heaven doesn't eliminate pain, but it lessens it and puts it in perspective. Meditating on heaven reminds us that suffering and death are temporary conditions. Our existence will not end in suffering and death. They are but a gateway to our eternal life of unending joy. That's our future. Leaves us though with one more description that Jesus offers of this heavenly home. It's found in verses four through seven, but notice verse six. It really is wrapped up in this. I am the way the way to the Father's house. I am the way, the truth, and the life, the eternal life that is promised. It all resides in me. We'll look at that next week. Father, you give us promises this world cannot offer. And so I pray that you would grant us the faith, the faith to believe these promises, to cling to them, Remember that this world is passing away. But your house, your home remains. To remember that we're living within the fall. And thus we will be sorrowful. We will be hurt. But grow in us an anticipation 
that fullness of joy that awaits us. And let that calm our hearts now. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.